Good morning. Our scripture passage is Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. As of me... I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. That Jesus Christ is born. This is the reason that we gather together. And during this Advent season, we're going to take a look at some of the psalms of Jesus, some of the psalms from the middle of your Bible that point to the coming or the work specifically of Jesus, of the Christ. So I'd encourage you, if you have a Bible, to open to the middle of it to Psalm chapter 2. And the psalms are the people of God's hymn book, in a sense. They are the, the songs for the people of God. They're, they're prayers to for the people of God. They, they teach us, they help us learn how to direct all of life toward the Lord. And they give voice to lament, mourning, joy, praise, adoration, complaint. They give voice to these things and wanting us to direct our lives all toward the Lord. The Psalms also help us live in the tension of life tension that you surely feel around this time every single year because we sing of peace and yet we know internally and externally that there's so much that's not at peace. We, we see a world that's not teeming with peace but more teeming with turmoil. We light candles and think about light but all around us is so much darkness. We celebrate birth and yet we know and it's ever present around us is death. And what Psalm 2 does is it steps into that tension by asserting that what we're experiencing in the tension of darkness and light, of birth and death, of, of peace and turmoil, are, are part of reality that we live in. And the first verse says that the nations rage. All is not right in this world. This is one news source that I looked at yesterday. Literally spent five minutes looking at this. Could have picked any day I just chose yesterday. Here were the headlines, world headlines. These are just straight from what I saw on the news feed. Hundreds missing after Nigeria school attack. Polish women forced abroad for abortion. Home of Italy's Rossi burgled during funeral. 
Iran executes journalists. Spanish police find migrants hidden in warehouse. There's one news source one day. We could do this every day for the course of history. The nations rage. And we have Psalm 2 in the midst of this. In the midst of nations that rage, God sets up a son who will reign and rule over all. And the invitation is to him, this son. In all the tension and all the turmoil and all the darkness in the world, God is, is present and he has an answer. He offers the deepest answer, the deepest solution found in this one who Psalm 2 calls the son. Now, it does begin this psalm with the nations, and what are they up to? They're raging. One and two says, bless, or that's one. Go back to chapter two. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? And the kings of the earth, they set themselves, and the rulers, they take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. The rage is, is, is noise. It's a noisy assembly. They're, they're like a sea that is roaring with the storm, or the waves are, are going high. And the dark clouds all around, and they're, they're not quiet. They're, they're making a sound. It's a noisy assembly. And notice that the psalmist begins with a question. There's some astonishment at the nation's rage, that the kings and the rulers, they, these are the ones who are the representative heads of these nations. They represent nations and peoples of the earth, and what they're doing is they're coming together and taking counsel together. The, the picture that we get probably when we think of nations coming together, maybe something like a, a boardroom with all these really stately people and a stately you know, table in the middle of them where they're all kind of hashing this thing out or making a plan. But it's less boardroom and a lot more mob with pitchfork mentality that's going on here. They're raging. They're planning an attack. They're looking toward a rebellious overthrow. And they make a united stand here. In their plotting and in their counsel, there's a united stand. And what's the united stand? Who's it against? It's against the Lord and his anointed. And in verse 3, they're saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So what's all the noise? What's all the racket? Why are they raging? What's all the plotting? What's all the counsel about? What do they want? They want to be free from God's rule. They want to be out from underneath the Lord. They don't want anything to do with his reign and rule over them. They think that the good life is found outside of God's rule, outside of God's kingship. They think that he's so harsh in his rule and his kingship that they rage. That They counsel together and they even find a unified front against the Lord because I think, God, he's surely shackling us. He's holding us back. He's oppressing us. He's limiting our freedoms. So let's burst these bonds apart. This is nothing new. In Genesis chapter 11, you might remember the scene of the Tower of Babel where humanity planted their flag in the ground in defiance of God and his rule, saying, let's make a name for ourselves. We don't need God's name. This type of rebellion goes back even further than Genesis 11. Indeed, it goes back to the opening chapters of the book of Genesis where God created man. It goes back all the way to Eden. God created man, put him in a garden, and he designed, created man to live in relationship to him under his good reign and under his good rule. And they did for a chapter. And then a snake slithered in. 
and tempted the man's representative head. In Genesis chapter one, we, or chapter three, we read of this account. Chapter three, verse one. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he, made, and he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And one commentator concludes this, saying that in Eden the serpent persuaded Eve and Adam that God was possessed of a narrow and restrictive spirit bordering on the malign. The serpent's questions carried a deeply sinister innuendo. What kind of God would deny you the pleasure and joy if he really loved you? He allows you nothing, and yet he demands that you obey him. God is holding out on you. He's restricting your freedom. Look at this fruit. It's delightful. It looks good, doesn't it? Why would he keep this from you and ask that you obey him? What kind of God would do those kind of things? And so rage against him, plot, counsel together, and then burst his bonds that he's put on you. And the lie that the serpent had fed to Adam and Eve was swallowed down whole and has since then been passed down to every generation that flows with the same blood that Adam and Eve had, leading to just this constant strife between humanity and their God. Since Eden then, all, including nations and their rulers and all peoples, are born in enmity to God and his anointed. You see, in chapter 3, God addressed these people. He addressed them in curses because of their sin. And in chapter 3, verse 15, he says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. So there's going to be this striving going on between the Lord's offspring, the, the ones who are righteous, that come from the woman, and the offspring of the serpent, those who are constantly raging against them. And enmity against the Lord here is part of this, right? There's going to be enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. But it's not just enmity with God. It's enmity between God and the offspring of the woman as well. There's enmity, seed of the serpent between the seed of the woman, and that enmity is the enmity that God has given to this offspring of the serpent. Offspring here, verse 15, that's a collective noun, so it's got plural implications. Those who are faithful, who fall into this righteous line of the seed of the woman, that's part of it, but it's also, if you notice, some other implications. In verse 15, it says, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. There's singular he doing the bruising, and there's a singular heel that's being bruised as it crushes. And so we know that in, verse, in chapter 3, verse 15, we have the kind of the first pronouncement of the gospel that, that there's one who's going to come. And yes, offspring is collective, but there's one offspring coming, and he is going to do some crushing points forward to the seed, the offspring, Jesus. Similarly, when we look in Psalm 2, 
we see that they are gathered together against the Lord and the Lord's anointed. Now, certainly that is a kind of, again, a, a, a plural anointing, right? There's, there's a faithful line of Davidic kings that they are the anointed of the Lord, set apart by God for their office as king, as representatives of the people of God ruling as king. But anointed also points us onward. The Hebrew word is Messiah. That's how we would say it. You translate that into Greek, and it's Christ, Christu. Points us forward to the Messiah, the King. And it's toward the man, Jesus Christ, that enmity and raging against the Lord is most prominent. It is where it peaks. We see this from the early disciples in the book of Acts, chapter 4. They say... And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and they said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, he quotes Psalm 2, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers who were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in the city there were gathered together against your holy servants, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. They plotted. They took counsel together. And what were they trying to do? Burst the bonds of God among them by crucifying, killing God's anointed Jesus. What drove their rage? What drove their plotting to take out Jesus? Whether it was the Jews charging Jesus with blasphemy or the Romans who were charging him with treason, enmity with God is what drove them. He was crucified and over him was written king of the Jews. In other words, they are throwing off any sort of his claim to kingship over their own lives. They couldn't stomach personally or even nationally Jesus' claim to be king. It's what's driving the nations to rage in Psalm 2. It's what's driving the ever-present and obvious rage of nations today. There are so many kinds and ways that nations and peoples are saying, let's burst God's bonds from us. Let's get out from underneath the shackles that this God has put on us. Some are more obvious and horrendous than others, but all fight God's claim as king, us included. We would like to think that we look at Psalm 2 and we say, well, it's the nations that are raging, and we can kind of push this psalm and keep it at arm's length. But the scripture bears witness along with our own consciences that have given to us by God that we have rebel hearts that rage against God. Does the serpent's question lingers in us, does it not? Have we not all heard the question internally? What kind of God would deny me pleasure and joy if he really loves me? What kind of God would put a command on me and tell me what to do? If he really loved me, wouldn't he let me do what I want to do? We're not born into some sort of spiritual neutral zone. That doesn't exist. As if we're just dropped in between the battle lines and we can choose. There's good over here and bad over there and we're kind of watching the battle play out. But we're kind of in the bubble. This is in the neutral zone in the middle. And then we'll just pick what side eventually. 
That doesn't exist. We are born with answers to the question of what kind of God would do this to me built into us. We say, a God that's unloving, surely. A God that wouldn't be best as king. Maybe I should insert myself as that, thinking that the good life is actually found not in his good reign and rule, but outside of it, under our reign and our rule. That would be a better life for us. We mistakenly give in to the lie that God's kingship threatens our best. And we sin against him thinking he's holding out on us, that he's limiting access to what's really good and delightful. See, look at the fruit. It's a delight to the eyes. Why would he hold out on us? And so we follow the nation's rage. We say, let us cast away their cords from us every time we sin. One author says it this way, that your sin against God beckons him to step off his throne, that you might ascend its steps. Your sin wishes the creator to relinquish his rightful rule and claim to glory and give way to your will. We are not neutral people, but those who want out from underneath God's reign and rule. We are rebels who rage. But rage and rebellion is not all the noise that's recorded in Psalm 2. The psalmist moves from the nation's noise and rage to God's response. So verses one through three, we have the nation's activity and the plan and their plotting, but the psalmist shows us what God is doing. In verse four, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. In response to all the plotting and the counsel together of the nations that are raging, the Lord is not fretting. He's not scrambling around saying like, okay, we've got to figure out how we get the, the let's, let's line up the military, let's get the strategy in place so that we make sure because that's a lot of kings and that's all the kings of the earth, so I've got to figure this out. Like, we better get the angels, get into the gym and start pumping some iron and make sure that we're strong enough to handle what's going on here. No, he doesn't do that at all. He laughs. He laughs because he uniquely, out of all beings, like knows the folly of the nations raging against him, saying, let's, let's be done with him. Notice the contrast. Verses 1 through 3, there's all sorts of activity on earth from many different kings. And you contrast that now with the Lord, this one who is sitting in heaven, sitting. He laughs. Nations, they're plotting to break from God, and then you have the Lord who is already holds them in derision. Reminds me of one of my favorite passages in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. Isaiah chapter 6 is where King Uzziah dies. You think about a king dying for a, a nation's history, a, a nation's movement and moment. That would be a difficult thing, a tumultuous time. Uzziah, when he died, he was a good king. They thought, maybe this king is the one we need. And he can bring back some really good things, restore some of the, the territory that we've lost. He can help us thrive and live as the people of God rightly, maybe. And yet, Uzziah fails them in that he died. There's more to the story than that, but at least that, as Uzziah dies. But what does Isaiah see in the midst of this? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne. Again, notice the contrast. There's a king, and he dies and leaves the throne. 
And then there's another king who never dies, who sits in heaven, and he is eternally on the throne. In the midst of a tumultuous time and the grief of the nation of dealing with the loss of a great king, God sits. And the same reality is prominent in Psalm 2. As the nations rage, the Lord sits in the heavens, ruling over all. The entirety of the Bible reveals to us a God who no matter what else is happening, and all sorts of things are happening, that no matter what else is happening, he reigns supreme. What an assurance to the people of God, right? That no matter what else is happening, their God reigns supreme. In a world that rages, in a world that's full of grief and wickedness, that's both internal and external, in a tumultuous place where there's election cycles that will drive everyone crazy or viruses and death, the Lord reigns. Nations rage, but it doesn't knock God from his throne. He laughs at their grabs for supremacy. He sits in heavens. His laughter here in verse 4 is not a laughter that's silly. It's a serious laughter. And it gives way to his speaking of his wrath. Verse 5, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. In God's wrath, he strikes, right? In his fury, he unleashes fire and brimstone on these rebel nations, right? It's not what it says. In those things, he, he speaks. God's response, his answer to the nations that rage is something that he has actually already done. Set up his king. And this is true that he set up the Davidic kings in the midst of nations raging. But clearly, Psalm 2 is pointing us onward. As we'll see as we go through this psalm, some of these things couldn't be fulfilled by Davidic kings. So it's pointing us onward to another king. It points us onward kind of the way Hebrews chapter 1 does as well. There were many kings that were in this line But this points us to one king. Hebrews does something similar. It says, long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So there's lots of times and lots of ways of speaking. But in these last days, he has spoken to us singularly by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom he also created the world. And this son is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So we have, just as there have been many times and many ways God has spoken, it led to this climatic time, the climatic speaking in the Son, Jesus Christ. So too, the answer to the nation's rage in part was installments of different Davidic kings along the way, but they were never the answer ultimately. The answer comes from the ultimate king. The Lord's answer, the ultimate answer to the nation's rebellion, to man's enmity with God, is the king set in his place. It's the one that we call Jesus. And I wonder, I wonder in our current day where the nations still rage, where we see all these raging things around us, if we still see this as the answer. Is our hope in the king? Is he the one we're looking to for ultimate solutions to remedy rebellion that's both external and internal? Too often, the proposed answer to soothing the nation's rage is new laws, or a different candidate, 
or a new regime or a new social order or maybe the right medication. All those can be good parts of the answer, but the ultimate answer is the king set up by God. Amen. And Psalm 2 points us to that king. And Advent reminds us of his coming and urges us to long for his coming again. Why? Because he is the ultimate answer. And we can far too easily settle for something less and miss it. Well, to help us not miss him, the Lord, as it were, kind of hands him the mic in verse 7. He says, I've set you up as king. Say a few words. Verse 7, I will tell of the decree. Again, the, the speaker switches. Now it's the son speaking. He says, the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now notice the description of this so far, of this person. King, verse 6, and now son, verse 7. Now that's interesting because these words could summarize what it means to be made in the image of God. What it means to be an image bearer. Few commentators say this that according to Genesis 1 26 and 27 through 28, that is where God created man in his image, in the image of God, he created them. The divine image defines human life in terms of covenant relationship with the Creator God on the one hand and with the creation on the other. The former, being in terms of covenant and relation with God, may be captured by the term sonship. They're to be like God, to resemble God. The latter relationship, that is, with creation i.e. between humans and the creation, may be reflected in terms of kingship. Rule and reign, hold dominion over all the earth. God created man to have a relationship with him, to be sons, this is relational terms, and to rule over all of his creation, to hold dominion in the earth. That was what Adam was, the son of God. And there were other sons. Israel was uniquely called the son because they had a unique relationship with God. And they were to then, in a kingly sort of way, bless all of the nations of the earth. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, here's another unique son of God. God is making a promise to David. And here's what he says in chapter 7, verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Kingly, kingly, kingly. And I will be to him a father. There's the sonship language. And he shall be to me a son. We'll skip down to verse 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And we know the line of David was a line that failed. Right, we, Israel, Adam failed, Israel's son failed, David and sons failed. They all fail to be sons rightly before God and live in right relationship with him. They all fail as kings to, to rightly live in relationship to his creation and all the things around them. They fail. They all break relationship with God and with creation. And yet God sets out to recover fallen sons. How? Through a promised king that he would call uniquely son, my only begotten son. Jesus said his baptism. There's this allusion here to Psalm chapter 2. What does it say in his baptism? God, they hear from heavens. This is my son. Or we could look to Acts chapter 13, where again, 
the book of Acts picks up Psalm chapter 2. Paul says this to the people he is preaching to in Acts chapter 13, starting in verse 32. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. Also, as it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Again, it's affirmed in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5, where they quote Psalm 2, that the son that Psalm 2 was pointing to was Jesus. Or in chapter 5, verse 5 of the book of Hebrews as well, all of them affirm that Jesus, out of all the sons, is uniquely the Son of God, speaking of his unique relationship with God the Father. Jesus, who is the very image of God, the exact imprint of his nature, where in him the fullness of God dwelled, was not only the perfect son reflecting the father, but he was also king. And as king, here's what he does. Psalm 2, verse 8. Again, he's speaking, and he's saying what the father told him. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. This is the son, the, the king, who is going to put everything right. All the nations that were raging in verse 1 are now going to be set right. They're going to be in his inheritance. He's going to fix things. And, and how does he get this inheritance of the nations? Again, we look to the New Testament and we find this in Romans chapter 1, verse 4. And he, speaking of Jesus, was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. How does the Son get his inheritance of the nations? He comes to this earth. He lives a perfect life as the perfect Son. And then he dies a sacrificial death, raises from the dead in kingly fashion. Then he starts to take over. That's how he gets his inheritance. He even stands and says to his disciples, right before he's taken up to sit at the right hand of God, he says, all authority has been given to me. Go and make disciples of all those nations that I am going to inherit. Nations that rage then can be reconciled to God because the perfect son, the perfect king, the perfect image bearer came, died, and was raised. And now we can go tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ has come, that we can have peace even though we were raging. We can have peace with this God who will put us underneath his reign and rule if we would be reconciled to it. But those who will not bend must break. Verse 9 affirms this. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And it just speaks of immediate and complete victory. That the victory, that the win for the son, for the king, it, it was never in doubt that he will get his nations. We see this again in, in Revelation chapter 19. And although much might be confusing in the book of Revelation, what we must not miss is the reign and the rule of the king. Chapter 19, starting in verse 11, says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. 
And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. There's your allusion to Psalm 2. And he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The Revelation and the ruling of the king in Psalm chapter 2 are, are full of judgment, full of God's wrath. But, but also notice that they're also full of grace. Psalm 2 is announced judgment before it happens. Revelation is pronounced judgment before the wrath is unleashed upon this earth. In other words, there's a warning here to be had. It's an invitation, and that's exactly where Psalm 2 goes. Look in verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. And he is calling, he's inviting all these nations that rage and all the people that would be under his wrath to relationship with him. Come to him. The invitation is for that. Uh, during Christmas, you might see the story in many different forms called A Christmas Carol about Ebenezer Scrooge. And he gets a gift, as it were, and then he sees uh, present uh, Christmas past. Christmas present, and then Christmas that is yet to come. And his Christmas that is yet to come ends up being a tremendous gift to him because he sees, like, here's where this is going. This is where this is headed. And then he wakes up and he realizes, it doesn't have to head that way. It doesn't have to end like it ended in my horrific dream. In other words, he was given this opportunity to change. And to the nations that raged, to the kings of the earth, and all the peoples who set themselves up against God and against his rule... Here's the invitation. It doesn't have to go that way. Don't plot against the Lord. It's vain. Serve him instead. Don't be taking counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. It's futile. You cannot beat him. Instead, why don't you kiss the son? When we say to kiss the son, when I say it in Psalm 2, we're not speaking about some sort of romantic sort of action here. We're talking about an act of submission to him bowing down in humble reverence to him, glad to say, I, I owe you everything. The invitation then is for the earth to receive her king, for every heart to prepare him room, and that's the invitation for us too, to kiss him, to fully submit to him, to place our faith in him, to rest in him, to live for him. Does that describe your relationship to the Son? It's a gracious invitation that we've been extended. The alternative to that invitation is facing his wrath and facing his fury. This is the one who will gain an inheritance of the nations, either in Revelation 19 form where he puts them down finally and fully, or in Revelation where you see all nations around his throne saying one thing about this son, this king, that he's the king of kings and lord of lords, that he's the one who saved us from our sins. That's the way he inherits the nations. There's no other way. So if you're raging, or maybe you're like Adam and Eve and you're, you're full of these questions of how could God hold out on me? 
Why is he limiting me and shackling my freedom and the good life? Maybe you're just weary from all the raging that's around you, outside you, and actually inside of you. Maybe you're wondering in some way, could this be true? The answer is not found in bursting apart the bonds of God. The answer that God gives, the one who created and designs us, was not by bursting the bonds, but by putting them on. Because these are the bonds, the bonds from God that actually free us, that actually give us rest because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. The good life is found in Christ. Truly, verse 12 is right. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. There is not refuge from him. There's only refuge in him. And in the midst of all the raging that's external and internal, all can find their refuge in him. Is Christ your refuge? The invitation still stands. Let every heart prepare him room. Let's pray together.